Ladies and gentlemen. Pacific Sound Radio. Hello and welcome to Pacific Sound Radio, your go-to source for everything happening in the Vancouver music scene. I'm James Olson, and thank you for joining us on the latest episode of Quarantine Edition. We hope you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy. Our featured guest on today's episode is Andrew Judah. Andrew Judah is a Kelowna-based singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and composer who over the course of five full-length albums has fine-tuned a melodic and structurally complex indie rock sound. Accompanied by his equally talented live band, Andrew has performed some of the biggest music festivals in Western Canada, including Skookum, Rifflandia, and Breakout West. At this time of recording, Andrew's latest release, Impossible Staircase, came out just a few weeks ago, and we are eager to learn more about the steps he took to complete this sonically intricate new record. How are things out in Kelowna, uh, Andrew? How are you holding up with everything that's been going on? Oh, pretty good. I'm. This is not way different than normal life for me. I work from home uh, as my day job as a composer, so I, I spend most of my days socially distant anyways. So... This is uh this is pretty normal. The main thing that affected us was just that we had several tours that were canceled. So just adjusting to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's kind of been weird for for me. Like I've been working from home for over a month or so now, and it's actually been kind of nice not having to go yeah. into the office every Absolutely. day. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it is. It does have its pluses. Yeah. And this whole thing's made me appreciate that. Like, thankfully, we do have stuff like this where Mm -hmm. there's a lot that we can still do with -hmm. the exception of course you know live shows absolutely yeah Yeah, i kind of miss miss that part of it but um yeah we're still able to communicate and all of us are most of us are still happy and healthy so Mm -hmm. that's good yeah and like how's Kelowna just doing in general i mean we're in uh, obviously uh, we're calling you from vancouver things are it's kind of the epicenter of what's been been going Mm -hmm. on but uh, how's the how's the community holding up I think it's all. I mean, it's sort of hard to get a pulse for yeah. what the community is like, but uh, a lot of the people that I'm connected with seem to be doing fine. Um, I don't know anyone who's been affected by the virus per yeah. se, at least not in, you know on a health level, mm-hmm. economically for sure. But um, yeah, I think people in Kelowna are over it. <laughs> it seems like everyone is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it feels like that. I, I was out for a walk with my dog this afternoon and there was a lot of people out walking and uh, it felt like nobody was obeying any sort of distancing rules at all. So, yeah, you know, I think that's one of those things where there's only so much they can do. Like the government can't keep yeah. people, force people indoors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was funny. I was uh, down by the beach a couple days ago and there was a group of kids because it was 420 and they were all just congregating together at this one beach. And I saw a couple of really determined bylaw officers kind of marching towards them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, All things considered, you know, it is a smaller community as well. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, we obviously haven't had you on the show before. So I got a few kind of biographical questions. Sure. How'd you uh, get your start writing, recording and performing music? Um, Well, I think that's a that's a sort of a there's no clear answer to that. But I've been recording music since I was younger, probably since I was about 15 years old. Um, But I've been doing it for quite a long time. And then I started releasing music in 2011. Um, And since then, I've just been making records and putting them out and touring and playing shows with my band which has gone through quite a few lineup changes over the years. Um, and I've also switched to being a full-time musician in the past seven years. Uh, I write music for TV and film and commercials and things like that. So pretty much music is my full-time thing now. What bands or projects did you play in before you started releasing music under your own name? 
Uh, I don't think anything official. We yeah. had a couple. Like, yeah, I never, never, we didn't put out any music or anything like that. But I played in punk bands and things like that growing up. Uh, I was kind of a skater kid, so uh, we we did a lot of that sort of stuff. But it was unofficial, you know, playing in various um, makeshift venues around the valley. I grew up in Abbotsford mostly, um, so I'd, I'd come out to Vancouver and play shows, or we'd play it, you know, all around the valley. But um, not under my own name. It was mostly just different projects. <laughs> Nothing you would have heard of. In the last few years, there's been a decent number of bands that have come out from from Abbotsford. But when did you move to uh, Kelowna and uh, take that up as your home base? Um, I have been here off and on since about 2011. Um, yeah, it, it kind of became our home base once we started just uh my wife and i we've got three kids so we wanted to be near family um yeah it's just felt like a good place to raise a family there's a lot of outdoor activities and things to do um yeah i grew up in the valley though so i'm I'm pretty familiar with the vancouver area and all that so we, we come down often it's not that far three hours three or four hours yeah, my uh, my sister lives up in Kelowna uh, herself. She uh, she went up there for UBCO, and she's just kind of stuck out there ever since. Yeah. And I don't blame her because yeah. it's uh, it's a really nice city. Yeah, it's it's nice. It it can be kind of insular because there's there's not a lot of things to do other than outdoors activities. There's not a lot of music venues, especially these days. A lot of them are closing down. There's a few left, but. They're they're of the sort where people are generally uh, preferring their their friends and socializing and <laughs> over music. You know, it's not they're not music first venues. I'll say that. Yeah, I have I, I've definitely heard about that, and uh, I think un- unfortunately with uh, some of the ripple effect of the of the quarantine and stuff like that, I know there's there's even going to be some venues down in Vancouver that are probably unlikely to to reopen. Yeah. But I know that it'll be. Yeah new stuff that'll pop up that actually does tie into a question kind of in relation to an interview that you did with the permanent rain press you made a point of stating that you know you don't you're you don't consider yourself to be a Kelowna artist necessarily is that just a matter of the music you make being separate from the community you live in it's more just that this is where I live but the music is not it doesn't have anything to do with Kelowna um I mean, I was writing music long before I lived here, and I, I never write with the place in mind. Um, I think there's a lot of bands that sort of brand themselves as local bands, and they and they talk about things to do with, you know, the lake or what whatever cliche Kelowna thing you want to talk about. Um, none of that is interesting to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm more so writing about personal experiences, and most of those don't really have to do with the specific location. Yeah, fair enough. Um... And I guess that that uh, you made me think that, at the very least, with with Canada, it's it seems to be less of a thing with artists going like, "Hey, we're a band from this city." Mm-hmm. That seems to be more prevalent with yeah. a lot of American artists. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also because in Canada, a lot of musicians don't see themselves as tied to one place because to reach an audience, they have to go such great distances. I mean, every venue worth playing is at least four hours from here. So uh, <laughs> we spend a lot of time driving and being in other cities when we're playing shows and that. Um, we still play in town every once in a while, but like I said, there's not really venues worth playing. So if we're putting on a show, you know, we'll we'll put on our own show. We'll we'll rent a venue and we'll bring out our own crew and all that, which is awesome. I love doing it, but it's it's a lot of work. Yeah, and I forgot the name of the theater that was used as the venue but is that what you did for uh a gig that you played about a year or so ago there was quite a bit of video footage i saw on your on your facebook um it depends on which show you're talking about but yeah most likely over the over the last couple years that's what we've been doing see if i can give you a clue it was the show where there was quite a bit of footage of your drummer at the time using a lot of uh different percussion like i think there's like paint buckets and stuff like that that was used on stage that's my friend zach yeah Yeah. (laughs) he's awesome uh yeah i can't remember which venue that was but 
because that was sort of, that's sort of a thing that we were doing for quite a while at you know whatever venue we were at. Um, Zach would set up these uh, five gallon buckets upside down and cover them with water, and we'd have this whole thing where we did a big percussion jam. It was a lot of fun. Are you still? Is that still part of your? live show or will be part of your live show once you can start playing shows again for sure it's always evolving and it it depends on the venue and it depends on what the set list is at the time but um definitely we we try and incorporate a lot of um moments in the set that it aren't necessarily it's not just playing the song but we're trying to you know create a an experience that's different than just listening to a record yeah, I've there's been quite a quite a lot that I've uh, read and heard about just uh, what do you call it like program directors and tour managers and stuff like that that have made a point of stressing. I feel especially younger bands, they're the some artists are some artists think about this and incorporate this, and some are a little slow to learn that uh, there's this idea that every song should visually in some way feel and look different on stage mm-hmm. yeah for sure uh i think part of it for me came from that i initially didn't really love playing live because i'm such a studio person um i love creating things in the studio because you know it's it's a playground you can do so much and you can control every single element whereas when you go to play live it's a little bit more chaotic and you don't know what's going to happen and the sound system might suck and you know there's all these factors that make it uh very different from working on music in the studio so for me to love playing live i learned that i had to treat it completely differently than a studio thing so we're, we're always trying to um adjust for every venue and and create a unique experience in that room you know that that's only possible in that room. So, it, you know, depends on where we are. Can you give an example where you really had to improvise and it actually paid off pretty well? Uh, well, one thing we started doing was uh, we'd uh, step away from the stage with acoustic instruments and go into the audience. Um, and we would play completely unplugged, just sort of in the middle of the audience. And we've committed to doing that and that has varying degrees of success. Sometimes it's awesome, you know, when there's a more communal crowd and, and you can kind of go into the center and, and it's a very fun time. But when it's, you know, say you're playing some bar in Nanaimo and there's, you know, not many people there, you may be playing to just them. And it's almost uncomfortable, but I think that because it's uncomfortable, and you're making this effort to go out to these people who have come out to see you. Um, it's sort of like a thank you to them. It's like, hey, this could be awkward, but you guys are here and we're here. Let's make this a good show, you know. And we smile and we laugh with them and it, it's good. It turns out to be, the. it's often the turning point in the show where, where it could be awkward, you know, because when you go to see a rock band, it's like they're on a stage and it's pretty loud and it's a little bit... Um, just sort of a invisible curtain between you and them. So we always start trying to just break down that barrier and make it more like, Hey, you came out to the show and that's cool. Let's, let's hang out. Yeah. And that, that even kind of, kind of reminds me of, uh, and I'm sure you've, you've, uh, you've seen this, but like, I think for a while now the, the Foo Fighters have incorporated that as part of their, their live set. Um, at the very least on one of their tours, they had a gigantic catwalk and at the end of the catwalk, they'd set up like a miniature version of the band and they do like a, like acoustic three or four, four song set to like kind of bridge that, that gap, create that uh, level of intimacy. That's really cool. I haven't seen that, but I, I got the idea from, uh, we saw Patrick Watson play, I think it was at the Vogue, um, some years ago in Vancouver, and he did a similar thing. We went out into the audience, and I think he had a megaphone or something, and he was just playing completely acoustically, and he had like a string section up on the balcony. Such a good show. But uh, I always really enjoy when bands do something like that. I think Arcade Fire used to do something similar to that as well. A, a similar example I encountered, uh, this must have been a year or so ago, uh, but a guy named Unknown Mortal Orchestra. You should, you should yeah. check out. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, yeah. he uh, last show he played in, in Vancouver, um, he 
was playing an extended guitar solo, and he basically ran around the venue, like, through the crowd. Like, he was yeah. playing a solo on three different bars and then finally returned to the stage after, like, ten minutes. That's great. And, and you know, like, that's one of those things that would be different at every show. Like, uh, for whatever reason, there's one part in our set over the last year where I had a little bit of a solo. Um, we're not necessarily guitar solo type band, but I have a little solo in one song. And I always try and find something to climb up on <laughs> while playing the solo. It's various times I've almost tripped and fell on my face, but not yet. <laughs> That's always fun when someone's able to climb up on something. Because it just like, even if yeah. it's like two feet above where you normally are, it still yeah. looks cool. Because I'm like, I'm even higher than the rest <laughs> of the audience. Yeah. yeah, and it's just a playful little thing to do. It's something different than just standing there. And uh, kind of speaking more about it, you know live performance and all that and all that stuff. Who makes up your live band right now, and what? Uh, how do they help recreate the magic on stage, the studio magic that is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the live band is in a bit of a state of flux right now, but our lineup for the last year has been uh, Caleb McAlpine on the bass, Kevin Dreger on the drums, uh, Nathaniel Sherman on the second guitar. And everybody in the band sings, and yeah, it's been it's been great. And we also have uh, Zach Goche, who did all the drums on the record, uh, plays with us sometimes, and he'll probably be the drummer um, when we resume playing shows after the whole COVID thing. Um, just depends. Kevin is awesome. He just recently moved to Edmonton, so um, that's up in the air. But yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, I did catch uh, a good chunk of that live set that you put out in lieu of the string of shows he had mm-hmm. planned for, for March, and uh, I was quite mm-hmm. quite impressed by... I mean, you guys are really well, <laughs> well rehearsed. I know okay. it's kind of a obvious statement, but uh, you guys were extremely Thank tight. You. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that the studio is your playground, so I figured I'd get into... Your two most recent releases, especially the the album that you dropped uh, as of this recording uh, just about a week or so ago. Um, yeah. To date, all of your records have been recorded at Suspicious uh, Sound Suspicious. That's I got that wrong. Uh, Sound Suspicious, your home studio Sorry. in Kelowna. What is your setup like, and what would you say your favorite piece of equipment is to use? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, Sound Suspicious is the name of my studio wherever I am, which has evolved over the years. But, it, you know, it started off as like a bedroom and then it was like a laundry room and then uh, it grew into a slightly larger bedroom. And, and now I'm in a detached two car garage that I've kind of converted into a more official studio, which is where I'm sitting right now. Um, it's probably hard to tell because of the, the frame of this, but I can see um, the I can see the guitar in the on the bass on the wall, and I can see the yeah you got yeah. quite a few guitars in the background. So oh nice, yeah. various so, stuff everywhere. Yeah, our, uh, I'll try and describe it for listeners. We got you can definitely see a Hofner bass hanging on the wall. We got a hollow body, got some stuff on, got some guitar racks, yeah. got a keyboard yeah. set up. Yeah, looks like a really cool just, space. Just to my side here, I've got. The Tower of... Ooh, yep. We've got an entire rack of, uh, rack of modular pedals, stuff. modular pedals and stuff. All, all that stuff. Yeah, um, I think, to be honest, my favorite tool is probably just the piano. <laughs> because it's where I do most of my writing and sort of hashing out ideas, even if the piano doesn't end up being the track. Um, it just gets used a lot. And there's something about the immediacy of just sitting down at a piano and, you know, there's no computer screen, just a pen and paper and a piano is often all you need to write. I get better ideas when I'm not at the computer. Have you ever been in a situation where, just because I've I've talked to obviously plenty of uh, songwriters at this point, um, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, you get an idea for a song when you're like, you know, in the in bed or in the shower and you're like oh crap i gotta run out to my garage Mm -hmm. all the time it usually ends up as a voice memo you know my phone is full of voice memos of you know just humming ideas in some random location or whatever um (laughs) those those are useful but uh hard to keep track of because there's so many of them 
especially if you don't have a, a, a name for it or even a placeholder name for it at the time. It's just like, okay, which one's an, which untitled one am I looking for? Yeah. Cool idea. 27. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. So your first three records were written and recorded entirely by yourself. Um, what changed when you started working on what would become uh, Metanoia, the EP series? Yeah. Um, Metanoia was done mostly by myself. I had a friend of mine, Zach Goche, playing the drums on it. Um, and that was an unusual process because I wanted to shake things up and put a bit of pressure on myself from a writer's perspective. So I gave myself these really tight deadlines and kind of publicly announced, hey, I'm going to put out an EP every month, um, which was all well and fine when I had written the first EP because I had a lot of time for that one. But then, you know, second and third one and fourth one, fifth one, sixth one, seventh one, it was much more challenging. So that was a really good learning experience. Um, probably not something I'll repeat anytime soon just because it was so draining um, on a lot of levels. And I'm much more happy with the result when I take my time usually, although I, I am proud of that record and the way it came out. I was just trying to shake it up and force myself to not overthink it. That was kind of the whole point of that experiment. But um, as far as working with other people on the most recent record, Impossible Staircase, I do have quite a few collaborators. Um, my friend Caleb McAlpine, who plays bass in the band, uh, he is the co-producer of the record. And I mean that kind of in the traditional sense of producer. He didn't ever touch the computer or have anything to do necessarily with the, with the performances or mixing or anything like that. But he was a constant presence in my life while I was making it. So if I ever I had an idea, I would bounce it off of Caleb. Or, you know, he might hear an early version of something I was working on and he might uh, push back if I changed it too much in a direction that was taking away some of the magic or anything like that. So that was a, that was a huge part of that. And uh, I've also got Chloe Davison playing this, all the strings on the record, who's awesome. I'm actually making a record with her right now. Um, she's got a solo project. Um, and Zach Goche is playing all the drums again. We rented a cabin and spent three or four days just doing drums, which was awesome. Um, various friends singing backup vocals. Um, I'm probably forgetting a few people. There, there, yeah, there was. It was a bit more collaborative, which was awesome, but more so in the sense of I would pre-write parts, and then friends would come to the studio and they would replace the parts, but with their expertise. You know, sort of taking what I had done and interpreting it into something that was better. It, it's funny the way you describe. Uh... Caleb is the the co-producer. I had this. The reason why I was smiling because, of course, listeners couldn't see that because this is a podcast. Uh, was I was kind of imagining him, kind of the the stereotypical '70s producer with the long hair, beard, and sunglasses, yeah. just sitting in the corner, going, "No, like no, but you, it's like play this note instead of that one." And like, yeah, you got it. Yeah, more or less, but without the uh, open shirt and the hair sticking up with the gold chain. Yes. <laughs> Caleb also has a, a record that we're working on together. He goes by the name of Common Fires. Um, he's been putting out some singles leading up to a record. Um, his music is really cool. Yeah, and I understand you've even like co-headlined or co-toured, which is kind of a, a smart way to do it, I'd say. Yeah, we did a cross-Canada tour together. It was fun. Was that the tour um, where you had like that uh, v uh, vlog or vlog? Yeah, vlog. I was That's right. the vlog yeah. series. We did, yeah. Yeah. That that, that was I didn't watch uh, I didn't watch all of it, but I, I did get to the, the part where you were stuck in the snow and was that New Brunswick and you got uh, buried by a snowplow? Yeah, it was a, a snowstorm called a nor'easter, which I'd never heard of until that moment. Um, yeah, we were driving through snow for probably seven to eight hours and it was just kept getting worse and worse. We were probably about twenty minutes from our Airbnb. We'd been, I think, in the car for at least 16 hours at that point. <laughs> so tired, just ready to, you know, ready to call it a day. And we got stuck in a very small amount of snow. Um, 
and totally not dressed for this for the weather like a couple of indie rockers <laughs> way out of our element first time driving across canada um it's a long story but basically we got rescued by a potato farmer the next morning <laughs> uh, this was in pei yeah it was quite an adventure it's i think it's on our facebook page there's a video of it yeah there certainly there certainly is i believe yes. uh, i believe nor'easter is a is an old gaelic term for ruin your life yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it was an interesting interesting night I've, I've never spent the night in a tim hortons in a gas station but but until that night we had i was drying my socks actually in in the washroom <laughs> over I mean, the over the the hand dryer it was just there, there was no way to even leave the gas station there was so much snow so it's literally like those it, um I know Tim Hortons like to to run what I what I affectionately call like car ads where they're like we're a part of your life because we're a we're a coffee chain. But they had yeah. one about like these women who went on a inspired by a true story about these women who went on a cross country like biking tour and they're like oh no matter what we had to deal with Tim Hortons was always there. <laughs> yeah, well that was absolutely true in our case, and you know. <laughs> I haven't wanted to go back since, though. So, <laughs> well, I was just gonna say, I, I do have to, do have to ask. I imagine it was like probably timing in terms of when you could line up the gigs. But, yeah, what what possessed you to 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 visit the Maritimes in the middle of the winter? <laughs> well, we didn't think it was going to be the middle of the winter. I I don't know a lot about it, so there's probably somebody out east who's shouting at me as I say this. But I think these nor'easter storms just they just pop out out of the blue it's just suddenly there's a big snowstorm and everybody has to hunker down so the weather was great the day mm. before and the day after but that day was it was white hell i guess what i'm saying is, is like your odds of encountering another one of those would probably be pretty minimal if you're going in august but that's neither here nor I think there yeah <laughs> i think you're right yeah less lesson learned when driving across canada be be wary of the weather yep let's see um Oh, I, so I had a question about uh, Metanoia kind of in relation to Impossible Staircase. I read sure. that uh, Metanoia touches on themes of belief, and this new record, Impossible Staircase, focuses on the struggles of one of your friends with addiction. Do you find that you're drawn to certain lyrical themes throughout the writing process, or do you tend to start a new project with a topic in mind? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I work better when I have a theme, but I don't sit down with a theme in mind. It's it's kind of, if a theme emerges, then I'll try harder to, to go in that direction. So usually when I start working on a record, it takes a little while to figure out what am I trying to say and what is it that I'm writing about when I um, am improvising and coming up with song ideas. Because um, for me, lyrics are the most difficult part, and often as I'm recording, I'll I'll do like a mumble, a mumble track, as a lot of songwriters do. You sing through a song, and you're trying to you know just write a melody, and and the shape of the melody emerges, and sometimes some words will come with it. And I always find it interesting to pay attention to what the subconscious is trying to say. Um, so maybe a certain line stands out, and then I'm trying to write a song around that line. Um, and, and usually that's because I'm feeling something about something that's happening in my life. Um, and so I try and then make it intentional and sort of focus on that. So yeah, with Metanoia, it was a lot of it had to do with my thoughts on organized religion and just where I was at in my life at the time. Um, but it's not like when I started writing it that I sat down and said, I'm going to write a god breakup album you know it's, this is what it's gonna be it wasn't that it was just that that's what happened um and i kind of made it intentional as i went along and with this record that i just released the same thing sort of happened like i was writing songs and didn't exactly know what i was going to write about until things started happening and escalating with my friend um who was struggling with addiction and I found that I was writing a lot of lyrics that felt like they were about that. So I kind of, you know, realized that I 
should be more intentional about it and try and tell that story as best I could. It might be hard to say, but at what point in the writing process for Impossible Staircase did you figure out, okay, this, this record is very clearly about you know the challenges that my friend is currently dealing with? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the first thing I realized was I started working on a song called Best in Show, which we released as a single. And as I was working on this song, it was an older song. It had nothing to do with the addiction thing, um, but it wasn't complete. The lyrics weren't complete. So I started working on this song, and as I was doing a vocal take, I started improvising some lyrics over uh, a new section of the song that was written, and I realized that what I was singing about had to do with my friend's situation. Um, And so at that point, it started becoming more intentional. uh, there's a good analogy for it I heard someone say and I think it was in in relation to directors movie directors um, but basically what they said was that there are architects and there are gardeners and you could architect a project you could sit down and say this is exactly how I want it to be act with intention the whole way through and then there are gardeners and they plant seeds but then as the seeds grow you try and you know, shape them into something that looks beautiful and intentional. But part of it came from a natural process. And I think with my writing, I'm a little bit more interested in being a gardener rather than an architect. It's not that I couldn't sit down and say, I'm going to write an album all about this, but I think that might come out worse, you know. Uh, I'm more so trying to react naturally to what's happening in my life and sort of garden things into something that looks intentional. Uh, And I like that. I like that analogy, and I think that that makes sense to me And that forcing yourself to create something probably isn't going to be as great as something that comes to you organically. Yeah, I, I think it could be that when you're trying to work off of your own intellect or your own ego, the result just it's kind of more obvious that that's what you're doing. Here's a song showing how clever I am. You know, all, all the thoughts I have on this topic. I feel like you can hear it when people are doing that. It's it feels a little bit uh, like propaganda of a sort. You know, whatever they're talking about, it, it just feels like they know the message they're trying to say, and they're they're trying to you know shove it down your throat, as opposed to them having an honest sort of guttural reaction to something in their life. With message bands, it's almost like you have to be that sort of band from the outset. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, whereas mm-hmm. some artists, they're like, oh, you know, these are we write these type of songs, and then they come out with a message album, and you're like, uh, okay, unless it's really good, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you think about Bob Dylan, he's like the, the quintessential protest songwriter of his time. None of those lyrics, when you review them now, feel very intentionally directed at anything. They do sound like he was kind of stream of conscious writing and people assigned meaning to it. And it's not that he didn't have meaning, but I think he was just honestly reacting to what was happening rather than sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a protest song. You know? uh, perspective I have on that is that at the very least with some of his protest songs, there there is a timeless quality to it. Like yes. Times there are changing. Thankfully, it's not burdened by specific lyrics about like oh this and this and this like i guess what i'm trying to say is that uh you know bob dylan protest stuff neil young protest stuff seems Mm -hmm. to have a little bit more uh, a timeless quality to it than like some of the joan Baez stuff (laughs) no offense to 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 joan but some of it is like so specific to one specific thing that it's like okay this is almost an artifact (laughs) i I still think there's a place for that oh yeah it does it does sort of limit the shelf life of it for sure. Mm-hmm. On it, well, I'll uh, actually back up a little bit because I kind of have a, the question I was jumping to is uh, connected to another question I had. Um, the album cover for Impossible mm-hmm. Staircase was designed by Max. Is it Vayner or uh, Wiener? Wiener. Wiener. Thank you. Yep. Uh, who has done artwork for two of your previous albums, Albino, Black Bear, and Monster. Um, How would you describe the cover for our listeners, and how does the art that Max crafted for you capture the ideas at play on the record? Okay. Um, 
So the artwork for Impossible Staircase is in the shape of a DNA helix, um, which was Max's idea to kind of signify addiction being more of a behavioral thing. Um, it's kind of a commentary on, you know, is it nature, is it nurture, things like that. Um, it's also a Ouroboros. It, the, the DNA helix is a, shape, is a snake, and the snake is about to eat its own tail. And Ouroboros, for those who don't know, signifies um, kind of the cycle of life, death and rebirth, uh, being reborn. It, it symbolizes a lot of things as kind of, you know, ancient religious symbolism. But uh, that's one of the things in there. There's a lot of little hidden details in it, which is really interesting to me because what I had said to Max was just kind of listen to the record and respond to it. I, I definitely gave some starting off points, but I knew that I trusted his um, his creative output. And yeah, I couldn't be more pleased with what he did. It's, it's really cool. We actually just got the vinyl today. It looks beautiful on the vinyl. Oh, nice. Uh, when's that going to be available for, for sale? It's available now on oh, Bandcamp. Yep. Yeah, this will kind of date the episode a little bit, but I know Bandcamp's in the middle of their nice uh, wave in the fee yeah. sale thing. Well, it's not, it's not like a sale per se, but like it's mm-hmm. a good excuse for it. Yeah. I mean, myself included, I picked up a couple records, so. Totally, yeah, yeah. me too. They're, they're doing it the first Friday of every month, I think. That's awesome, yeah. And I'll be, uh, <laughs> so I'll be lo- <laughs> spending some money every every yeah. first Friday of the month. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and um, another detail that I, actually two de- details I noticed with the album cover was the Hourglass, uh, mm. and the, with the Ouroboros, it reminded me more of, I don't know the name of it, but the old me- medical symbol for doctors, which is the coiling two snakes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Which is a uh, very similar to. I actually, I have to see that, but it, it does look a lot like that. You're right. Yeah, like I saw that before the uh, before I thought of the the Ouroboros, like the snake circle eating its tail thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't remember the origin of that, but I know that has an interesting story behind it too. It's something like the the snake winding around the staff has something to do with like some religious thing from a long time ago that morphed into a medical. Thing. Yeah, I, it must be like either Greek or Mesopotamian or something like that. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm more but, of a I mean, modern I, history yeah. guy myself, but <laughs> yeah. I grew I grew up in a Christian family, so my mind goes to it being you know mm-hmm. something to do with Moses's staff or something like that, you know. Yeah, or like the the snake in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, could be anything. They all get their ideas from the same place, so who knows? <laughs> ah, oh, so my my producer Mark actually looked this up with the um uh, the the medical symbol with the snake. Uh, apparently, it's the staff of. I'm gonna butcher this because uh, it's an it's an old uh, uh, Greek name, but uh, As the Pious was the son of Apollo and the human priestess or human princess uh, Cronus. Uh, As the Pious is the Greek demigod of medicine. So Interesting. Acor- yeah, according to mythology, he was able to restore the health health to the sick and bring back bring the dead back to life. So it was originally just a staff, and then they added in the the snakes and the wings. Cool. Yeah. So it's I it, yeah, and I guess that kind of makes ties into like you know the Hippocratic oath is still mm-hmm. a huge part of medicine to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So cool little details in the in the album cover. <laughs> Thanks. I know you've you've partially talked about this in terms of you know you kind of realizing that there was a theme to the the record and at the very least centering centering the lyrics around that around that. But what was the writing and recording process like in terms of just the the structure and the flow of the album? Because you know listening to it, everything seems to flow together very mm-hmm. uh, very distinctly. Yeah. Um, well, from the beginning, I knew I wanted to take my time on this one. Uh, kind of as a reaction to the process of the last record, which was done under pressure really quickly. Um, so that influenced the sound a lot. Um, and also, I knew that I wanted to press it to vinyl. <laughs> so that has a you know inherent limitation of you know approximately 22 minutes per side. 
And I think that's kind of responsible for how a lot of classic records flow. That feeling of side A is over, now side B is beginning. Um, so I was definitely working with that in mind. You know, albums like Dark Side of the Moon or Abbey Road or something like that, where it, the structure is very clearly side A, side B. Um, so that was sort of a, a totem for me the whole time, just thinking about that. Um, and yeah, what else about it? Everything, it's like the gardener thing I was describing before. Everything evolved kind of constantly right up till the very end. There was some tracks that got cut, um, mainly because I felt like they didn't add anything to the overall feeling of the record, and I didn't want it to feel too long. It clocks in at about 44 minutes and 44 seconds, which is another kind of nerdy detail. I wanted it to be a palindrome, you know. Ooh, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. Actually, if you if you listen to the record uh, on a CD player or even on a, you know, on a streaming service on if you hit repeat, it loops without any silence. It's a there's a shepherd's tone that kind of weaves in and out throughout the song, uh, throughout the record between the songs. And at the very end of the record, the shepherd's tone is descending. But when you get to the very end, if you have it on repeat, it ascends back up into the first song with no silence. That's really cool. Uh, and that reminds me of a, a record that, um, uh, have you ever heard of the band King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard? Yeah. Yeah. yeah great. Yeah. So they put out a record called Nonagon Infinity and maybe this might be something to look into for, for Spotify, but they, the, that record, uh, is, is a palindrome in that it endlessly repeats. And like, cool. even when you start the record, it, it, it's like you're thrown right into it, like in the middle of a song, but they figured yeah. out a way, I don't know how, but they figure out a way to like program Spotify where that album never stops playing, even when <laughs> it hits amazing. the final song. And it's Very the only cool. time I've encountered it. So like I don't know. Maybe you should get in touch with Spotify to see if they can I'm sort something have to out for you. Check that out after this. Yeah, I'll have to. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, just like I'd say, just um, oh, okay, we're fine. Uh, <laughs> I'd say yeah, just like go to like the last song, play the last two seconds, and then it will just automatically start. I think I was That's listening cool. to the album at the gym and I'm just like, I'm still listening to this album. And then I, I realized there's like three tracks in back at the beginning. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> What's going exactly. on? Well, sounds like a similar thing to what I was going for. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and can, this applies, uh, uh, not just to impossible staircase, but your songs in general often feature, you know, various textures and layers of effects and different instrumentation. Uh, I'm glad you brought up best in show because, while uh, you know that's like the lead single, um, it's one of the more direct songs. There's still you know quite a lot going on. You have like a little bit of a somber rhythm going on in the first half or the first chunk of the song. It sounds like you've got either uh, a kabasa or wood blocks as an accent, and then you know in the final section you've got some you know uh, you've got like that dramatic synth line going. Um, how do you know when a song needs more layers to it or when you have to show restraint with the, com uh, with the composition? Or is there such <laughs> thing as restraint? Yeah, well, I think uh, my process is very much sort of throw everything at it and then scale it back from there. Um, so what you're hearing is the restrained version, <laughs> but uh, it, it may not come across that way, but definitely because I have my own studio and I have more time than some other musicians might have to work on the recordings just by nature of it being in my house. Um, I'm not paying for studio time, so I can endlessly tinker, which is the reason I set that time limit for the prior record. Uh, and this record took me nearly two years to complete. So, uh, how do you know when it's done? I, for me, I feel like it's done when I love it as much as the moment I wrote it, which is kind of, and there's a long in-between time, but you know, when you, as a songwriter, when you first write a song, you're like, yeah, this is the best song I've ever written. I love it. You know, it's always your most recent song is your favorite, which I'm sure you've heard other people say, but uh, yeah, I feel like I know when it's done, when it comes back around, when I have that feeling again, I'm like, okay, that's, I've done everything I can do to this and, and I'm excited about it. So hands off. When you've gotten out of the woods of pulling your hair out, trying to figure out one specific part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I, I, the thing that takes the longest for me is the lyrics and the vocals because I, I could spend forever just trying to get a vocal performance feeling like it's convincing. It's not just about pitch or anything like that. It's more that I care a lot about the 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 quality, the character of the performance, kind of treating it like it's acting. Like if I'm singing a song that's meant to be angry and I don't sound angry because I've, you know, I've had a nice day. <laughs> you know, there's no reason to be angry today. I might sing it the whole thing through in perfect pitch, but it, it just doesn't feel right, you know. Um, so I spent a long time trying to get the, the character right. So there's one song on the record where I probably did like 150 different passes just trying to get it right. And coming into the studio every day, just redoing it, redoing it. Was that a I Don't Give a Shit by chance? Just because that's like... Yes. Okay, yeah, I figured, because yeah. like, that's definitely the, the angriest song on the album. Yeah, I've had enough of your shit, yeah. Oh, there we go, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely, and, and also just on a, on a vocal level, it's sort of a, it was a difficult song for me to learn how to sing, because I go from kind of a, a loud, angry voice to a soft falsetto all in the span of five seconds, you know, and just trying to get better as a vocalist and, and get comfortable with performing things like that. Um, yeah, that's, that's new for me. And I, on this record too, to speak to that, I felt a lot more comfortable, uh, sort of expressing myself vocally than I did in the past. I think I was often more controlled on prior records, whereas this one's a lot more, I'm singing in different voices and, and kind of trying things. And I think that has to do with playing live more often where you're sort of forced to sing loudly when you might not want to <laughs> yeah this might be a hard question to to ask but i know you know there's a there's some artists that i've encountered that have actually you know done new versions of older songs have you ever with your even with your own catalog have you thought hmm, i'd like to retry that song one day like give it another give it another go yeah tempted all the time but i'm afraid that it would be a rabbit hole of self-indulgence sort of trying to perfect past versions of my work and 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 change them to something that is possibly better but it also kind of i'd be afraid that it would take something away from the quality that it had and also you, you know you run into people who say you know this song on your first record is my favorite song and we walk down the aisle to it or whatever their memory is of it you know uh i don't want to cheapen that by saying yeah but that old version is garbage here's a better one you know i i can sing and play better now and here's that version because i i think the goal shouldn't be or isn't for me at least as a musician to to make something that's perfect but instead to make something that is honest so it might be dishonest to to, to fix it all you know but yeah. i'm always tempted yeah fair fair yeah just i figured i uh, figured i'd ask about that because uh, the example I'd use is I've uh, Devin Townsend, you know, well-known Vancouver metal musician. Yeah. He's he's kind of gotten into the podcasting game game because he can't tour right now. And mm, yeah. a couple of his songs, only a, a select few, he's redone and he's explained why. Mm. And I would agree that the 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 newer versions of those songs are better. But it's that's uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I have to check that out. And it's not that I would never do it. I've definitely considered it. I think I'd be more likely to make uh, an alternate version, you know. So maybe a song is a full band arrangement, and now it's a solo piano arrangement. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, Just that'd be a cool way to do it. Different. Yeah. Let's see here. Um, oh, yeah. So um, let's see. I did have another question about the record. I know um, run a little a little short on time, and we've also been chatting for about an hour or so i know you're probably busy with a bunch of bunch of other oh, stuff good. yeah um enjoy it uh so penrose which is the second track on the album is definitely one of the most uh, one of the more complex songs that you've released so far what was involved in the construction of this number and was there any concern with this record that you know how these songs would translate uh, in a live setting i mean the live video you put out kind of proves that you're able to figure it out but you know, writing it in the studio is a whole other story. Yeah, it's a funny thing to do because it's always kind of a nightmare trying to learn how to play them live because 
a lot of them are studio constructs and it's a process of layering and, and trying different things and, and you never really have to play the whole thing as a band while you're recording it. Um, each part has to be performed, of course, but it's not like this, you know, let's get a band in the studio kind of classic way of making a record. So when it comes to playing live with my friends, we have to sort of figure out what are the core elements of this song that have to be there to make it sound like this song, um, which is actually a process that I've really come to love. Um, at first, it was like kind of a bummer because it always felt like I was sacrificing something to, to make the live version work. But now uh, I really enjoy that. And I, I think it's just it's helped me overall kind of concentrate on what is it that makes this song what it is. And it's probably not the 27 layers of textural ambience that are behind everything, you know, <laughs> as much as I might love those. And I may have spent two days experimenting with the tape machine and bird noises or something stupid, you know, that doesn't need to be there in the live context. Yeah, it's about the emotion that the guitar line expresses, not the fact that you had a, a thousand multi-tracks of the same yeah. guitar going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's one thing I should, I should mention as well, that without the help of my friends, I, it wouldn't be the same because I have a, such amazing musicians in my band who are very good at identifying those core elements as well. And, and helping to distill it into something that has personality. Um, it's one of the things that I really like about playing with the band because although it still sounds like the song that I wrote and worked on in the studio, it takes on a life that's more, it, it feels more alive to me because they're adding their own personality to it. Yeah, um, one thing that, I mean, I, I really appreciate just do, you know, doing research for, uh, for our chat here was just the fact that you made a point of emphasizing who played on the record with those little videos that you, that you, uh, that you put out. Yeah, yeah, a lot of amazing musicians played on the record, and it definitely wouldn't be what it is without them. And you know, also just the fact that everyone in your live band does backing vocals which is uh, mm -hmm. a rare, a, a great find, but kind of a kind of a uh, a challenging find as well. Has it been one of those things where like, okay, yeah, you know, come into the audition, but you're doing backing vocals <laughs> to be in this band? <laughs> I think it's uh, it happened. It's happened naturally and sort of evolved as uh, as the band has taken on various shapes. But yeah, I definitely really love that part of the live show that we can all sing together, especially when we do the stripped down performance, because it's, you know, it, it takes away all the loud elements and, and the main thing you have to work with is your voice. So singing with those guys is a blast. Yeah. And just, I'm always, always impressed by a band that can pull off any sort of like multi-part harmony, especially in a, in a live setting. It's just, it sounds so good. Thank you. Yeah, everybody in the band is also a recording artist on their own, so it's a band of people who could front their own bands. So, yeah. <laughs> a super group in a way. I guess Almost. so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Super group of unknowns. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that actually kind of ties into uh, another question I had. Uh, along with helming the production of, of course, your own uh, records, you also serve as a producer for a few different artists. Um, who are the who are some of the acts that you've worked with, and what has been the most rewarding project that you've worked on to date? Oh, that's hard. Um, I have worked with a lot of different artists, uh, mostly people who have either become my friend through that process or were already a friend of mine. Uh, but I definitely I've learned a lot through doing that. Like I think working with other artists and helping them produce their songs is what has made me a better musician. Um, just kind of because the thing I'm trying to do when I'm producing is to not make it sound like me, but to make it sound like a, you know, a more well-presented version of what they're doing. Um, so as often as I can, I'm just trying to bring out the best in them and be very careful that I'm not imprinting my aesthetic onto it too much, unless that's what they want. Uh, so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or not, but definitely that's been influential to me, working with other artists. Um, yeah, but recently I've done records with Windmills and Icelandia and uh, Common Fires and Sherman, 
Chloe Davidson, Joshua Clark, Max Wiener, who did the artwork on the record. Um, yeah, there's there's other Sean Waters band. Who else? I started a record label, <laughs> which is a, a side to this. Uh, a lot of my friends are on that label, so is it is it called Sound Suspicious Records? It is. There yeah, you go. Keeping it all in house. Yeah, we started a podcast too, where we just similar to this. We talk about the creation of the song and all that under the same name. Oh, that's awesome. Are you kind of doing something similar to what you did? Um, I had notes about this, but of course I don't have them right now. But you were on, <laughs> was it Lori Brown's podcast? She used to have a CBC program, Pondercast. There we go. Now I'm remembering. Yeah, yeah, Lori, she's awesome. She did a full episode on my record, Metanoia, which was kind of like a a bucket list thing for me to have her dedicate the full you know, whatever it was, hour and a half long episode to the record. Um, she's so insightful in the way she talks about music is so poetic and beautiful. And I was a big fan of the signal for oh, years. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing program. And, uh, that started by me tweeting at her just because she had said something and I responded and said, I listen to the signal pretty much every time I'm driving home from a gig because for one, it's the only thing on the radio that I like. <laughs> and for two, I mean, she's she's amazing the way that she thinks about music. Yeah, I, I kind of had a s- similar... That's how I discovered the the signal because um, back when I when I had a car, if... Uh, and it's a, a it's an older vehicle. I still have it. I just didn't bother getting it reinsured. But I don't have Bluetooth on it and I don't have a way to hook up my phone. So it's either CDs or the radio. And... yeah. I think this might I might be shooting myself in the foot with any sort of career in commercial radio but quite frankly the only radio station yeah. I could tolerate was CBC Radio 2 and I really yeah. liked the signal when it was when it was on. Absolutely. Yeah, great program. I think I think there's a program in its place now that is also doing similar things but I haven't uh... Yeah, it's called After Dark. It's it's not the same as Lori Brown's program, but I also really, really like it. It's really well done. It's like good cool. late night driving music, a lot of good like uh, R and B and like dream pop and stuff like that. It's a good mix of stuff. Very nice. Yeah. Um, let's see. So this might might be a hard question to to answer at this time, but uh, since you're not touring right now, you might have some more time on your hands to do more writing um where do you think you will take your music with your next release good question um usually when i start a project i kind of have a a false idea of what it will be sort of lay out all the the things i'm hoping i'll i'll achieve and usually what happens is not at all that (laughs) it's a it's a it's usually a yeah it's how do i describe it I think it's a lot easier for me to to have a list of things than it is to actually achieve those things. And I'm also more happy with the result if I'm not uh, sort of prescribing what it will be ahead of time. It gets back to that Gardner thing. But I really like to sort of, sounds so cliche, but I like to let the songs decide. Um, and, And that could be anything, but if I write something and in my head I'm thinking, oh, this has got to be like dark and it's got to have synths and I want the drums to be really heavy. If I'm prescribing those things ahead of time, then I'm not really going to discover anything fun in the process. So more and more, I'm just trying to write songs that can stand up on their own on an instrument and then see where it goes from there. See, see how I respond to it. Um, but, uh, you know, to contradict myself completely, I'd like to make a record of solo piano performances, just piano and voice. That'd we'll be, see. Oh, yeah, keep going. Sorry. No, that's all right. Yeah, that, that's basically it. I don't, I don't have plans beyond that. It, it might be that. There might be some strings. Who knows? I was going to say that'd be a, that'd be a cool chain, change of pace. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, it'd certainly be uh, a different different direction at least for the next release than you know what you've done with the with the last few which have been you know really complex in a cool way Mm -hmm. yeah and i'm just 
I'm trying to challenge myself to write material that is feels like I can represent it live without a lot of musicians, which right now uh, most of the material I've released is very arrangement based. It's very dense and it requires a lot of people just to pull it off. Um, but I'd like to have some songs in my catalog that I can just sit down at a piano and play it and people know the song, you know, oh yeah, it's that song and it sounds like how it should. Yeah. Smoke break songs for the rest of the band. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd love it. A question I've asked the, the past few guests that we've had on the on the new quarantine-friendly version of the show, what would you say is the best way uh, for listeners to support the bands uh, and artists that they love, uh, especially in their in their local scene, considering you know the ability to go to live shows is not on not in the cards at the moment. Absolutely, I think it's it's hard to say what the best would best way would be. Uh, I guess if you're talking about financially, then you know just buying their records or buying their CDs, however however they choose to sell them, um, since we can't go to shows. But m- beyond that, I think a lot of us listen to music on streaming services and consume a lot of music, or at least I do, so much new music. And I think the best way to support a band is to not keep it to yourself, but to actually share it with other people that you know will love it and kind of you know curate those recommendations rather than just you know doing an email blast or a facebook post or whatever people do these days um find a friend that you 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 appreciate their taste in music and share it with them and say you got to hear this because i think you'll like it i think that that means a lot and i i agree i had uh, had actually an experience like that earlier today I, I was listening to a song i was like oh my god this is beautiful and i just shared it like just Facebook yeah. message, message, messaged it to a couple of fa- friends. So yeah, absolutely, and that's that's very meaningful. I think for independent musicians, word of mouth is the number one way that people discover something. Well, I don't know what I'm saying. I just word of word of mouth is a very good way to spread music for sure. And I think too, like at least I've with my type of music, I've noticed that it tends to be for people who like listening on headphones alone. It's sort of introspective. It's not like a big communal sing-along type thing. It's not, uh, you know, driving down the road on a sunny afternoon listening to a happy jig. It's, It's not that. So it tends to attract people who are of a more thoughtful, introspective nature, which also means that they'd be less likely to share it. Um, so sharing music with somebody can be going outside of your comfort zone if you're more introverted. So I think for anyone listening, just know that that means a lot to us artists who are also introverted and sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, and that's a that's a better way. It uh, if it's not if it's not the sort of music that you'd want to throw on at a house party, then send it to your friends <laughs> directly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that was just a blanket statement. I, and I was thinking, like, you know, Radiohead, great band. Don't put it on at a house yeah. party. <laughs> oh, man, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I I, yeah. I tried to put on Queens of the Stone Age at a house party once, and I got in shit. I was like... Really? Yeah, it was... Yeah. Oh, yeah. come on. It was a, Songs for the Deaf? Everyone yeah. get down to that. Oh, it's I great. know. Yeah, it was, yeah, the party was lame, anyhow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you did them a service. Yeah, and, and kind of speaking to, to recommendations, um, what local bands or artists would you you know recommend we bring on the show for a future episode? Mm. Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop names of friends. So I think you should have Icelandia, Windmills, Common Fires, and Sherman, and any of the other artists on the Sound Suspicious roster. There's uh, like the cool thing about starting a label with friends is that I, I legitimately like their music. It's it's not none of it has to do with profit or trying to market something for a you know whatever purpose. It just we kind of decided that it would be better if we could support each other in a kind of community sense, and 
also it looks more legitimate to people in the industry if there's a label involved you know and these days what is a label i mean you don't need a label really for most of they don't provide tour support or distribution or you know they just I, I could be talking out of my ass but most of the people i know who've been involved with labels just end up getting screwed by them so we're treating this more like it's a it's a label air quotes <laughs> it's just a collective of friends putting out music yeah fair enough um and uh good incentive for me to to check out their music and find out more what what they're doing because i'm always looking for for what's going on in different pockets of of the province as well because you know there's obviously a lot a lot of it is going on in the greater vancouver area lots of great bands mm-hmm. in victoria but i know there's tons of well, maybe not tons but a lot uh, yeah. uh, scores of great artists in in the okanagan region more and more yeah there's a lot of great musicians here i think the the scene has struggled somewhat in the live uh area that there's just not a lot of great venues to perform at but um there's a lot of great right songwriters that uh yeah, just don't have a place to play. Finally, how can listeners check out your music and keep up with everything you're up to? Uh, we're on all the usual spots, Instagram, Facebook. I, we've got a website and mailing list and all that stuff. Um, we're doing the podcast a little bit more frequently now. Only one episode has been released, but um, yeah, that's that's me and several of the other guys in the band interviewing different artists and, and talking about the process of writing cool and um so everything's under andrew andrew judah but where can uh, people listen to the podcast it's called sound suspicious it's on all the usual podcast platforms cool i'll definitely give that a give that a listen i like to there's not enough there there are good there are a number of good music podcasts but i feel in terms of the world of podcasting there it seems to be the the little brother of the bunch absolutely yeah well, great. Well, I, I really enjoyed some of the episodes of, of your podcast. I, I hadn't heard of it before you reached out to me, but um, I checked out a few episodes. Um, Jordan Clausen and Days or May. It was really cool. So thanks for doing what you're doing. Yeah, and honestly, thank you for, for checking out the, the podcast as well. I um, Yeah, I have no idea what religion, listenership is like, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> keep cranking away at it and keep trying to, to build things up. So I, I really appreciate the, the uh, you checking it out before coming on the show as well absolutely thanks man i'll be listening well thank you andrew and i'll uh, i'll let you know when this uh, episode uh comes out cool sounds good thanks Great. man nice chatting with you you too stay okay. safe stay healthy thanks andrew i will bye-bye bye thanks for listening i'm your host james olson pacific sound radio is produced by mark lingelbach you can check us out on facebook at pacific sound radio instagram at pacific sound radio twitter at pacific s radio youtube at pacific sound media our website is www.pacificsoundradio.com and you can also check out this show wherever you stream your podcasts if you know a local band or artist that you think should appear as guests on our show let us know fill out the form on our website or send us an email to talkpsr at gmail.com 